this is untitled. Um, I originally chose this poem to do in Holy Week for obvious reasons, but um, we didn't have agape in Holy Week. And I was reluctant to do it after Easter, but the shadow of the cross continues, and I was urged to do it nonetheless. But this is not the cheeriest poem ever written, as you'll see. I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. What hours, oh what black hours, we have spent this night. What sights you, heart, saw, ways you went. And more must, in yet longer light's delay. With witness I speak this. But where I say hours, I mean years, mean life. And my lament is cries countless, cries like dead letters sent to dearest him that lives, alas, away. I am gall, I am heartburn. God's most deep decree, bitter would have me taste. My taste was me. Bones built in me, flesh filled, blood brimmed the curse. Self-yeast of spirit, a dull dough sours. I see the lost are like this, and they're scourged to be as I am mine, their sweating selves, but worse. Well, this is a poem I'm published in Hopkins' lifetime, like everything else he wrote, probably written in the late 1880s. We have it only on one piece of paper um, on the back of a sermon he was starting to write, and it's remained in, in that form. Um, Hopkins, you'll remember, uh, was a brilliant student at school and at university at Oxford. He took a double first in um, greats, as it's called, which we would call classics. So he got a first in Latin and a first in Greek. Uh, that, that's the top top honour degree you can get in, in the British system. And his Latin was so good, he would converse in it. So he, he read Latin pretty much as well as he would read English. Um, he then converted in his last days at Oxford to Catholicism, which meant, in effect, in those days, in the Victorian period, that one couldn't get a job teaching at Oxford or Cambridge or anywhere, certainly not in Scotland. Um, you couldn't get a job in the civil service. You couldn't get any kind of respectable middle-class job. The only way you could get um, a halfway decent job if you were Catholic in England at the time was to leave England and go to France or Italy. And he was a fierce patriot, so he wanted to stay in Britain. He felt that he had a vocation to become a priest. That might have been just about the only thing he could have done as it happens. He went to the oratory in Birmingham to see um, Newman, and Newman didn't think that he had a vocation to become an oratorian father, and Hopkins decided to become a Jesuit. Now, in those days, the Jesuits were very different from how they are now. In the United States today, the Jesuits are generally regarded, I think, as a fairly liberal religious order. 
in the Victorian period in England, they were highly conservative. They were, as it were, the Marine Corps of the Catholic Church. So he went through a very strict uh, education in seminary. All of the discourse in seminary and all of the examinations were conducted in Latin. Uh, because his Latin was so good, he read Duns Scotus one day when he had a few moments in the library. Uh, and Scotus's Latin is notoriously difficult. And he was uh, very enthusiastic about Scotus. But Scotus, as I was explaining the other week, was a Franciscan, not a Jesuit. And the Jesuit official theology was very different from the Franciscan official theology. And in a, a fit of enthusiasm in his final theology exams, he quoted Scotus. And his examiners thought he was unfit, therefore, to teach theology. So they wouldn't allow him to teach theology to other Jesuits. They would put him into parishes um, and nothing worked. He um, gave the wrong sorts of homilies to the very poor and destitute in Lancashire and also the very wrong sort of homilies on, in Farm Street, London to the educated wealthy Catholic Londoners. What do you do with someone who fails at everything? Well, in the Victorian period in England, you sent them to Ireland. And that's what Hop happened to Hopkins. They made him professor of Greek at University College in Dublin. Which sounds great. Professor of Greek, University College Dublin. But it wasn't great. Um, the students he was teaching were like 15-year-old boys who weren't that good at Greek. And one of his duties was to examine all Greek throughout Ireland. So most nights, he was up till two in the morning grading papers, translation papers in Greek. He suffered from terrible migraines and had to have uh, compresses on his head while he was grading and then couldn't sleep. He couldn't make friends in Ireland. He hated Irish politics and basically became extremely depressed. He was one of these people who suffered from what we would call scruples. Um, and so everything he did, he second-guessed as to whether he was doing it with the right intent. And he came to the conclusion for a while in Ireland that uh, God had turned his back on him. This poem is about that sense. Um, he died at the age of 46 in Ireland, and his last words when he was dying were, I am so happy, I am so very happy. Very ambiguous, because was he happy that he had some intimation of going to be with God, or was he happy because at last he was done with his awful life? And this is much debated. So we have to read the poem with these sorts of things in mind. But of course it's got a much more general application than what the context I've just given. I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. So he wakes, let's say, at 2 or 3 a.m., a familiar enough experience, I'm sure. But notice the way he puts this. I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. The word fell has got at least two meanings here. It's a dialectical word 
in English, in the north of England. He was a, a priest in Lancashire. And a fell is a desolate high moor without anything growing on it. So he feels this sense of a desolation and emptiness and a sharp slide down it. The other word, which the other meaning of fell, is an animal's pelt. So he wakes up in the night and it, as it were, the darkness is like the skin, the, the bristles of an animal rubbing itself against him. And both of those meanings, when combined, give you a sense of the sensual horror that he feels on waking up at night. What hours, oh what black hours we have spent this night. You'll, you'll note that we go from the first person singular nominative to the, um, to the plural, from I to we. But we're not yet told what the we is. So he's sleepless in his bed. What sights you heart? Ah, now we know who the we is. It's himself and his heart. The heart being the seat of one's emotions in the 19th century and the 20th century and the 21st century. It wasn't always the same. In the 15th century, the seat of one's emotions were the bowels. Luther, if you read Luther, you'll see that he often talks about his bowels, about God being in his bowels all the time. It's not quite what we expect. The heart is where we expect emotions to be. What sights you heart sore? An interesting idea that our emotions have the ability to perceive things. Ways you went. It's as though, as he's lying awake at night, he's unable to control his feelings and they just go off on their own. And more must in yet longer lights delay. This is going to keep on happening. It's a long time till dawn and he doesn't think that he's going to be able to sleep. We still don't know why he feels this way. Why his heart is so upset, so burdened and trying to travel around and find solutions to the problem that it experiences. And then it gets worse. With witness I speak this. Namely, he's not simply saying it, he's bearing witness to the statement, which is a much stronger, almost legal, claim. And of course the word witness for a priest must evoke the Greek word martyr, which means a witness. So he's experiencing a kind of martyrdom. But where I say hours, I mean years, mean life. 
he now realizes or bears witness that this is just not one night of trouble where his emotions are trying to uh, find a proper destination, a proper home. Rather, it's years that this has been happening and indeed his entire life. And my lament is cries countless. So notice it's a lament, it's not a complaint. He's lamenting his situation. He's not complaining about it, which is a slightly different thing. And my lament is cries countless. So he's been crying out about this situation, not just this night, but for years, maybe his entire life. Cries like dead letters sent to dearest him that lives, alas, away. I don't know that in the United States we use the expression dead letters. We certainly do in England, where I was born. In fact, a, a dead letter is one which can't be delivered won't be accepted or can't be delivered for some reason and it's taken back to the post office and there's a particular office in the post office in London called the dead letter office. So if you run into a relation who says that he or she sent you a Christmas card but it didn't arrive, you go into town, you go to the dead letter office and they look through and they see if there's a letter from this person that was addressed to somewhere near where you lived but perhaps your relation got the number wrong on the street or his or her handwriting was so bad they couldn't identify the street and you can find it. Here, however, his cries of desolation are dead letters. That's to say they're not being delivered at the right address. They're prayers addressed to God and God isn't receiving them. There's no answer to the prayer. They're dead letters. But he is still dearest him. This is Christ. That lives, alas, away. The letters have to go, he feels, an infinite distance to be received by Christ. But Christ is not receiving them. They're just being returned. This is the not entirely unfamiliar phenomenon of people praying urgently for something important and not getting an answer, it seems. Not getting an answer at all. That's the octave of the sonnet, the first eight lines, and now we move to the sestet, which is the reflection on what's been going on. And the first thing he reflects is, I am Gaul. I'm Gaul. Not I have Gaul, or I've tasted Gaul, or I taste Gaul, but I am Gaul. His entire being has become Gaul. I am heartburn. It's not momentary acid reflux. His entire being is heartburn. His heart is burning. Why? He tells us. God's most deep decree 
bitter would have me taste. Now we might ask ourselves what God's deepest decree is. And I would suggest to you that for Hopkins, the deepest decree of God is the unforgivable sin, which is talked about in the New Testament. The only sin which God cannot forgive. And the only sin God cannot forgive, we're told, is the sin against the Holy Spirit. And the sin against the Holy Spirit is the sin of despair. Despair is such a grave sin because it eradicates all hope. And if you can't hope for forgiveness, for reformation, then God can't help you. So the most, what does he say? The most deep decree is that of you can't be forgiven. And you can't be forgiven because you don't think I can forgive because you are in a state of despair. This is a priest who is saying this, of course. So this is someone who actually knows what he is saying, is the witness that he is um, giving to this. God's most deep decree, bitter, would have me taste. It's got at least two meanings, I think. On the one hand, he feels the bitterness of this despair. He has another poem, which is also as desolating uh, as this poem, uh, called Carrying Comfort, where he tries to confront his own despair. But the deep decree makes his entire being bitter to the taste. This is an interesting idea that one can taste one's own selfhood. You can taste your own being. You get a sense deep down of what it is to be John Smith or Betty Rogers or whoever one might be. And that taste, rather than being pleasurable or enjoyable, is for him now completely bitter because he's despairing. He has no hope. And why does he have no hope? Because he prays to God and God doesn't answer him. That's why he doesn't have hope. Or he feels that God is not answering him. God's answer isn't coming at the time he wants it to come. So, the decree itself is bitter, but his taste of himself is also a taste of pure bitterness. And then he says, my taste was me. What he is tasting is not something, a taste that will go away, it is his very self without the possibility of change, he feels. It will never get better. Bones built in me, flesh filled, blood brimmed the curse. His entire being, organically, is brimming with the curse 
perhaps of original sin, perhaps the curse he feels that God has laid on him, and why God isn't answering his prayers. That he feels that he's been brought up, come to manhood, become a priest, become a professor, and all of these things only to be cursed by God. Why would he be cursed by God? I think from reading Hopkins, because he thinks deep down that his work was inadequate as a priest. That he was having no effect. He was preaching to the very poor in Lancashire, in Liverpool, but the men were always drunk, always violent. The women were always just producing more children and they didn't have enough food to feed them. They uh, couldn't pay the rent. They were diseased. The children had rickets and there was nothing he could do when he went over to bring communion to the sick and visit the families that could make anything better. And at one stage he says in a letter that he will become a fierce communist because he felt this was the first whisperings of communism in Britain and he said because it's the only thing that will improve the lot of the poor. There's no possibility. They're in an endless cycle of degeneration and abuse. So it takes a lot I think for a middle-class um, boy like Hopkins who went to Oxford and then became a Jesuit priest to think that he might turn towards communism. But that was how bad the social situation was that he was required to, um, to preach to. A very characteristic sentence of Hopkins comes next. Self-yeast of spirit, a dull dough sours. The yeast which makes the dough rise when one's making bread. Here, if the yeast is of selfhood, it will make the dough, the, the dough sour. So you're never going to get turn yourself into a proper loaf of bread, which is nourishing, if the yeast that you use is the self, especially if the self is experienced as bitter as it is here. And in many ways this is the pivotal sentence of the poem, I think, because in realising this, that his obsession with the bitterness he experiences in himself, that this is not going to change him. Nothing good will come of this preoccupation. And then in an utterly devastating conclusion, he says, I see the lost are like this. And with that verb, I see, we recognise something not entirely peculiar to English, but which certainly acts throughout English, that the, word, the verb to see means not only perception, but it means to understand. And there is also a sense of a visionary seeing. So he understands, or perhaps almost in a visionary manner, 
sees the lost, that's to say the damned. What are the damned like? They're themselves unable to change. Hell is the experience of tasting oneself for eternity and the taste is perpetual bitterness because the adhesion to the self is what has sent the people to hell. So he feels extremely close to the damned. He feels as though he is in this life already damned. I see the lost are like this. Crucial word is like because when you say something is like something else it allows the possibility that it's unlike it in one or more respects. And their scourge to be as I am mine, their sweating selves, the fires of hell, as he conceives it, as a Victorian Catholic, the, the, the damned are in the fires of hell and sweating. And that's how he feels at the moment. But the poem doesn't end there. There's one of the best placed semicolons in English, I think. The semicolon is a very tricky piece of punctuation to use. And this is one of the most perfect uses of it, where it's holding two parts of a sentence together and apart at the same time. And they're scourged to be as I am mine, their sweating selves, but worse. The damned are in a worse situation than Hopkins because they cannot change. He has the possibility, even though it seems remote, that he can change. And it may well be, if one puts an optimistic spin on this, that this is the answer to his prayer. That what he has needed to see is the difference between his own situation and those who are irredeemably lost. And in realising that small difference between his own experience of himself and the damned in their experiences of themselves, he can possibly pull himself out of this spiritual malaise. The spiritual malaise which has been brought about by his sense of God not answering his prayers. If so, this would be a very negative and harsh answer to his prayers. But the lives of the saints are full of instances of them feeling abandoned by God as though God has turned his back upon them and isn't answering their prayers at all. We have to remember, those of you who've heard other talks in this series, that when Hopkins was a seminarian, he felt extremely close to God. Think of those beautiful poems about nature, God's grandeur, the Windhover, um, uh, as kingfishers catch fire, where he just felt that God's presence was uh, around him perpetually and he was, in, he was embraced by it. And all of that hope and pleasure in the proximity of God was taken away from him when he was in Ireland without friends, without family, without, he thought, 
any hope of his work coming to fruition. So, I think that's what the poem is about, but maybe there's things you want to add. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where it says God's most deep decree, um, it made me think of the decree, his first decree is let there be life. Right. And then what I thought, what was the deep decree would be the, the, the making of man. Right. It does. Right. 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 If you take deep decree to mean first decree, the one which is right at the bottom, as it were, the first decree, let there be light, then. Um, Sure, uh, it means he is bitter, his experience of the light and life is sheer bitterness. Yeah, that, that would work. You see why this might have been a good poem to do before Good Friday? Where was this in his life? It was only a few years before he passed away. He was in his early 40s. Yeah. Yeah, that's Do you think that the betrayal of selfhood in this poem can be reconciled with this betrayal of selfhood in Etching Christmas Catch Fire? It's the complete negation of it in many ways, the negative experience of it at least. In one of his letters, he talks about uh, this sense of the, um, the sweetness that people feel of themselves when things are going well. He, he, he tells the story of a cricket match at the seminary where he was, and there was an Irish boy there who was training to be a priest, and he was playing cricket, and he managed to hit a ball the six. And Hopkins heard him as he hit the ball and realized it was a six. And the boy said, ah, sweet myself. <laughs> Which is wonderful. And so Hopkins liked that. He, Hopkins thought he tasted himself at that moment and tasted pure sweetness, right? Which is the exact opposite of what's happening in this poem. Yeah. I'm sorry? It's too bad he couldn't have ended up where Habakkuk ended up. Oh. Where all these things were not there, but all our hope in God. Right, right. In carrying comfort, yeah. yeah, in carrying comfort, he's in the same situation, but he says, I can no more. And then he has a, his new sentence begins, I can. And so he has some small hope. And in that poem, Right at the end, he realizes that for the past year of darkness in his life, he's been wrestling God. It's like the story in Peniel with Jacob wrestling God. And um, 
it, it's a wonderful poem where he says um, that he's been wrestling with my God, my God. And then, so he comes out of it, but not in this poem, unless it's by a mere, you know, uh, like a, a, a tobacco papers uh, uh, amount. It's it's tiny. Right. Very much like the Psalms, certain of the Psalms, yes. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's an identification with Christ on the cross, of Christ saying, uh, of being in almost despair uh, on the cross, and Hopkins is feeling the same kind of abandonment by God. Yeah, in carrying comfort, in some ways it's even worse. He has images of God rooting on him. Um, Thy ring-world right foot rock, stepping on him and stomping him like an ant. Um, the hero whose heaven handling flung me, foot trod me. Really, has a very visceral experience of being um, punished by God for not coming up to the mark. Yeah. He could think of them as um, his own experience of crucifixion, if you like. Well, that, that line, there stirs to be as I am mine. Right. Think of the scourging. Of exactly. Is he, is he saying that I'm, I'm scourging myself? My, my own thoughts are my scourge. Right. My own, everything, I'm, I'm just raking myself over and over for right. all the ways that I've failed and fallen short. Right. And I can't break out of that cycle. Right. I think so. But it's not God that, that's scourging him, and it's not evil men that no. are scourging him. No. Right, because at this stage, if you are the one of the lost, you are set without the possibility of change. You are just left in yourself. It's an interesting thing in, in traditional Catholic theology. Um, only the blessed experience eternity because God is eternal. The lost don't experience eternity. They experience what's called sempaternity, endless ongoing time, which would be hellish in itself. You can't change. You're just left with yourself 
and the bitterness of self and of what you did and what you didn't do and how you can't change it now and you go over that eternally, well not eternally, sempiternally. Oh, maybe the flames change. <laughs> but you can't, you can't change your state of being. Yeah. There's no way, there's no secret staircase up to heaven in traditional Catholic theology. There's, if you like this poem... There's a whole series of them called the Terrible Sonnets. Not because they're bad, but because they inspire terror. And, uh, you know, when you're feeling too happy one day, just pick up your Hopkins <laughs> to that series and you'll get back to the right level. Well, the thing is, he felt massive isolation. When he became Catholic, he really broke with his family, for all intents and purposes, who were Anglo-Catholic. Um, but going over to Rome in those days was a qualitative difference from being Anglo-Catholic. And so he really lost the intimacy of family life. Of course, he couldn't have a family himself, he was a celibate priest, and um, he never fitted in with the other Jesuits. He could never really achieve a, an intimacy with, with the other Catholic priests. And when going to Ireland really just was adding insult to injury. Yeah. Well, he probably wasn't cut out to be a Jesuit, I would think. I mean, he, he may have been cut out to be a Catholic, and he may have been cut out to be a Benedictine, for example, but not a Jesuit. I mean, preaching was not his, his gift. Um, he was highly educated and could possibly have been an excellent priest ministering to Catholics at Oxford. Or, or, or something like that, but not to the very poor in Lancashire, uh, of whom he had no experience. He had sympathy, as we know, from his letters and his diaries and other poems, um, but he had, there was no way he could really communicate hope to them, because they didn't have hope. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, one of, one of the amazing things about it is that it still goes on, right? I mean, even in this poem, it still goes on. Um, but the beautiful poems about nature when he was younger, they go on. And so his preaching had a completely different outlet through writing, even though no one 
only a couple of friends saw his poems when he was alive. So this is, is an interesting theological lesson to learn about this, that it may well be that in our own lifetimes we think of ourselves as being highly unproductive. Nothing, what, what are we doing? No one's listening to me. I'm not making any kind of contribution. But it may be that there is a contribution being made, a seed of a contribution, which will take off in one's children or grandchildren or with other people that you barely know. And this is an example of all the good that Hopkins has done through his writing, which had no effect in his day. But afterwards, an enormous effect. Yeah, Mike. Not to my knowledge. You can write a letter to Francis. Yeah. Actually, you have to start with the bishop. Yeah. You need one reason why not. I mean, the, the church, the Catholic Church, has got a very narrow idea of, of canon, uh, of being canonized. You require two miracles after your death, and they're usually miracles of healing, um, because they're the ones which are most easily determined. So what we need is for people to get awfully sick and pray to Hopkins and have mir miraculous uh, cures. Then maybe be St. Gerard. But the church is very hit and miss on its saints. A number of people are canonized for political reasons, pretty much. Others think of Julian of Norwich, as saintly a woman has ever lived, and she's never been canonized. Yeah, so she's not St. Julian of Norwich. Right. Well, if you read the diaries of Mother Teresa... Right. That's right. She just felt pretty much abandoned by God. And, and her early years were just very blessed ones. And then that, that went. John of the Cross is a great example of this, and a very extreme example of this, where he underwent what he calls uh, the dark night of the soul where he felt that um, God had completely abandoned him. His brother Carmelites thought that he'd gone wayward and needed discipline, so they put him in a little cell. He was only a very short man, about four foot eight or something like that, tiny little guy, and they put him in a little box where he could neither stand up nor lie down in complete darkness with no toilet or, any, or water or anything like that. They led him out twice a day, being charitable people, and they um, stood in, t in a line, each of them with a bat, and that they'd make him run through the length of all of the, um, all of the monks, and they would hit him. <coughs> Went one way, and then the other way, then he was back in his cell until... Oh, that was f for, how many, for, for years this happened. While he was there, in complete darkness, he composed an entire body of some of the most beautiful Spanish poetry ever written. All, by, all kept in his head until he, could, he got out and could write it. Yeah. And then once he was out, he wrote commentaries on his own poet, poems, which become 
the, one of the most intense resources of Christian mysticism. And he details how for years he felt that God had just turned his back upon him. And in many ways, this was like a tunnel he had to go through in order to come out with this renewed confidence in God. And when he came out of it, when he emerged from it, he was really quite extraordinary. One, of the, one story which is exemplary of this is that he was travelling with a very young priest to the sea in Spain and was sitting on the, on the cliffs looking out in great wonder at the ocean and rejoicing privately in the glory of the ocean and what this tells us about creation. And this priest with him, this young priest said, Father, Father, there's a holy woman who lives nearby. Why don't we call on her? And John said, we're before the great majesty of God. Why should I go and see a holy woman? Which is not a bad thing. And eventually, he acceded to the young priest's wishes and they traipsed over the plain and got to this humble abode of the, where the holy woman lived. And they opened the door and there was the holy woman levitating. Her feet came up to where John of the Cross's face was. The young priest fell on his knees and John stood there and the woman rebuked John of the Cross and said that he should show reverence and he said, I will show you reverence, good woman, and I will tell you, you have very large feet. <laughs> she came down <laughs> after that. And then he said to the young priest, now let us go and return to see the glory of God, the ocean. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, Thank you very much, Gary. My pleasure.